Um, I think it's really remarkable that we're celebrating something today that happened about 2,000 years ago. Guys, 2,000 years. So, so let's process just for a moment what 2,000 years is like. 2,000 years. So um, you know who that is? That's David Beckham, okay? That's a 21st century dude. Okay, we're not talking about something that happened in the 21st century. That's our century. You remember that? Billy, did you have a flashback? Yes, he did. We're not talking about the 20th century. We're not talking about the 19th century. That'd be the 1800s. We're not talking about the 18th century or the 17th century or the 16th century or the 15 or 14 or 13 or 12 or 11 or the 10th century, not the 9th century, eight, seven, six, five. I couldn't find a person. I could not find a person for the fourth century. So we're not talking about peacocks or, or the second century. We're talking about the first century. Appreciate for a moment that we celebrate something today that Christians have celebrated every year for 2,000 years. And that today, we celebrate that with Christians around the world, in every nation around the world. We celebrate that Jesus today entered Jerusalem. And that he was just a few days away from his death and from his resurrection. It is remarkable. But why does it matter? Why does Palm Sunday matter? Well, quite simply, it's the day that Jesus declared himself king. That's why it matters. Does it matter that Jesus is king? You bet. You bet your life. You bet your eternity on it. It matters that Jesus is king. And he entered Jerusalem with authority. So to cover that, we're going to start by opening our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 29. If you need a... Uh, a bound Bible. There's one under the seat that's in front of you, little red Bibles. While you're getting uh, set up, let me remind you that Jesus was a covert Messiah for three years in his ministry. He was actively avoiding the title Christ, anointed one. He was withdrawing from crowds and was telling people at times to not, not talk about him, to not tell people about his miracles. There are some exceptions, but I've mentioned this before. It won't stop me from mentioning it again, but during the first century, Rome was very sensitive about possible Jewish rebellion. That was something that they were pretty sensitive to because there had been some rebellions. And Rome's favorite way to punish the, the rebel Jews was to crucify them. And so after a rebellion in the first century, in, in Israel especially, you would find the, the roads and the, 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 the cliffs lined with crosses to warn everyone else, you don't mess with Rome. So many of these groups and uh, the groups ended up 
largely becoming called the zealots. They were people who were um, zealous for the return of, of, of God's reign over, over Israel. The, the zealots were often led by people who called themselves messiahs. And uh, so here comes Jesus in the first century, knowing this is what happens to Jewish rebels who are rebelling against the Roman Empire. And Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ, but he knows what happens to people who are considered rebels, people who call themselves the Messiah. He is the Christ, but he's being careful about it because he doesn't want to die really fast. He has some ministry to do. But after talking to Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus set out for Jerusalem knowing that it would lead to his death. He's not hiding anymore. So we're in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29. This is what, this is what happened. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, that's the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So a couple of things. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on purpose because a prophecy in Zechariah, this is Zechariah 9.9, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So by asking for a donkey on his way into the city, Jesus was referencing this passage, which says that the king who brings salvation would come in to the city on a donkey, on a colt. So then Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem as king and savior. Just a few days before his death and his resurrection. We know his disciples believed that Jesus was the king because they laid down their clothes before him just like their ancestors had done to declare Jehu king in 2 Kings 9. Jesus is not hiding, he's not covert anymore. Now he's on everyone's radar. And this morning we're gonna focus on one of the things that Jesus did 
in Jerusalem. In fact, one of the first things he did. Remember, this is just a few days before Passover. So many people were traveling to the city. They were coming to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice in the temple in remembrance of, of Passover, of what God had done uh, in Egypt for his people and his deliverance for them. Now, the temple was huge. So here's a picture of the temple. It is five football fields long. Five football fields long. And it's three football fields wide. Now, the temple is not just, this is sort of the inner temple. The, the outside right there is called the Court of Gentiles. The, the temple is the, is the whole thing. And as you get inside, that's called the beautiful gate right down here. As you get inside, it's, um, you know, Gentiles are not allowed on, into the, the, the inner court. It is a beautiful temple. It's, it's gorgeous. It's designed perfectly. It's designed to heavenly specifications. It's a really beautiful temple on the outside. It's the place where things were killed and atonement was made for sin, according to God's law. It's the particular place that God had commanded his people to go and kill as a reminder that sin leads to death. This is where God shows what atonement means. This is the place where people go to kill an animal in remembrance of the fact that sin leads to death, that it must be atoned for. There has to be a payment for sin. This is where that happens. Now, the way it worked back then was that the temple only accepted shekels. So Jews who were coming from out of town, who had a different kind of currency, when they got to the temple, what would happen is they would go in and they have their money from where they were, they would have to go in and, and uh, they would have to exchange their money for shekels. And so there were tables that had been set up for people to exchange currency, money changers. And they would take a profit from that. You know, just like when you go to another country, you have to exchange your dollars for whatever, rupees or whatever, right? So, um, so people were making money off of that. And then you would take your shekels and then you would go over to someone who was selling animals. And you would say, you know, uh, you know uh, depending on, you know, what you felt like you needed to, to sacrifice to the Lord, you know, give me, give me a number three, you know. Uh, it, are its wings clipped? Okay, that's, you know, uh, yeah, that's fine. I'll take it. And then you would go to a priest and then you would, tell the priest that you needed to make a sacrifice for, for your sin, and then you would, um, that's how it worked. Because of Passover, because of all the visitors coming in, business was booming at this particular time. Try to imagine the animal pens and the cages and the sounds, and you've been to the fair and it smells a little bit, you know, like animals, right? Um, or maybe you've been home, maybe you're um, but, um, <laughs> but just imagine all the animals, imagine the sort of haggling, maybe not haggling, but, um, the bizarre sort of, uh, scene that would have been going on in the temple that day. 
Roman guards walking around trying to keep the peace, priests in uh, robes waiting to accept your offering and lead you into the court of Israelites to perform the sacrifice. Luke's gospel, unfortunately, doesn't give us a lot of detail about what was going on and what it was like when Jesus walked in. We're going to flip over to, to Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 21 gives us a little bit more detail. And it, he says, it says that Jesus entered the temple. So here he comes. He's, on, he's come in on his, uh, on his donkey, and they're shouting, Hosanna. And, and Hosanna in, in Hebrew, be Hoshana, it means save us. It means save us. And they're calling him, you know, blessed is, is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're saying, you know, you know uh, um, glory in the highest. And he's coming in. It's a big deal. And he comes into the city and then he goes into the temple. So he entered the temple and he, then he started driving everyone out. So he drove out all, the, all who sold and bought in the temple. Now, you remember what the outer courtyard was like. I mean, there's a lot going on. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So Jesus goes into the temple and he sees all the commerce, all the business, and he basically throws a righteous fit. Is this what the temple is supposed to be? Is this how, the, is this how God designed it? Now remember, for a moment, remember that in Hebrews it says that the temple, the earthly temple, is a physical earthly copy of something that exists in heaven. Why did God tell them to design it with such specific specifications? Because it is a copy of something that exists in heaven. And the Holy of Holies is the place where God sits in heaven. So Jesus knows the temple really, really well. Because he designed it. And he's been there for a long, long time. And the Bible says that when, we, when people offered sacrifices in the, the earthly temple, it was sent up and received in the heavenly temple. And so Jesus, as the Christ, as the Messiah, the anointed one, as the Son of God, eternally existent, goes into the city, goes into the temple, and what does he see? Not what it's supposed to be. Not what it's supposed to be. On the outside, it's fine. On the outside, it's beautiful. On the inside, it's just business and pigeons. And you think that you think people selling pigeons from cages is uh, is helping God's people to give the first fruits of what they've produced? It's not. It's just an excuse. It's a it's a token. The temple inside has just lost its way. It's a drive-through sacrifice. Cheap birds, people making money off the system. And it was appalling. So what does Jesus do? He drives them out. 
He shuts it down. He drives them out. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. What's striking is that on the outside, the temple looked like it was supposed to, but on the inside, it was empty. The high priest was a, was a, a place there by Rome. The people had turned the temple into business, not prayer, not worship. So uh, they drove them out. Mark's gospel adds something to that. So in Mark's gospel, they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple. He began to drive them out. He overturned the, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then he wouldn't allow anyone to carry th anything through the temple. So Jesus and his disciples, they go into the city, they go into the temple, they drive out the people who are doing business, they knock over the tables of the money changers, and then they basically set up shop and they said, no more, no more. And nobody fought them because everybody knew that they were right. But they shut down business. So if Jesus wasn't really, really, really on Rome's radar yet, he's on Rome's radar now because Rome does not want people messing with the system. The peace between Israel and Rome was precarious. And so Rome does not want, and if Rome is mad, guess who else is mad too? All of the Jewish religious leaders would be furious. Oh my gosh. Imagine someone walking into church today and just driving us all out and being like, we won't allow you guys to have your worship service in here anymore. You'd be furious. To them, they had so lost their way that they couldn't differentiate what was going on for the, for the, the leaders. It had just so lost its way. So they didn't protest. They just shut the place down. They told everyone to get out. You're not allowed to do business here anymore. You see, Jesus taught over and over and over again the importance of your heart being locked in on God. Uh, inside, not, not the way you look, but your heart. His big criticism of the scribes uh, in Luke, it's at the end of chapter 20. You can see the scribes are basically the pastors. They're the teachers. His big criticism of them was that they're all about the show. They're showing off. Long prayers, fancy clothes, public appearances, the best seats, but on the inside, they're hypocrites. All of their outward acts are pretense. They're fake. The Pharisees, he had the same criticism. He called them whitewashed tombs. That you look great, but on the inside, you're just dead. The lesson here, we see Jesus coming into the temple. He drove out the riffraff from the temple. The lesson is that man cares about the outward appearance. We care about that stuff, but God sees inside. And that's what matters to God. That's what matters to God. You might look like a good Christian. In fact, you might intentionally sort of style yourself or design yourself to look good to other Christians or to appear to be a Christian. But what does that even mean? Appear to be Christian? God looks at your heart and he wants to know that he has your heart that he's got your insides. 
what's going on inside will start to come out. But if you start with what's on the outside, you're moving backwards. We care about what people look like. We care about the outward appearance. But God sees inside and over and over and over again. God sees inside. Inside the temple, people were just going through the motions. Yeah, you know, give me one of those pigeons. I need to make a sacrifice because that's what we do. I only want to give the best to the Lord. No, not really. That's not what you're doing. But it's empty. The whole process is empty. As a matter of history, this made Jesus a marked man. We'll talk more about that on Friday. But today I want to reflect on, on a couple things that are going on here in the temple. First, you and I, you, we are all at risk of making our faith about the religion, about the tradition, about going through the motions. And when we do that, we lose the heart that Jesus is looking for. We're all at risk of that. For example, think about the church in Ephesus from Revelation 2. From Revelation 2, Jesus is writing a letter to the church and he says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and that you can't bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. Good job. You guys are doing great. But I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Because if you don't, I will come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We are all at risk of making it about the things that we do, the way that it looks, the, 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 the religion of it, rather than the, the heart that Jesus is looking for. In the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, you guys have been working so hard and you hate evil and you love good and, and you're, you're rooting out false teaching and you hunger for truth. And I know that it's been hard, but you haven't grown weary. If Jesus told you that, you'd be like, thank you, thank you. And then he says, but I have this against you. You don't love me like you did. The temple, it looks good. It's the way God designed it. And then as soon as you get on the inside, it's just lost its way. Have you done that? Have we done that? Has the American church done that? Has the global church done that? The nice thing is that Jesus is always calling us back to himself. He's always pulling us back and redeeming our experiences. He's always doing things like this and saying, but you've done a great job, but where's your heart? Because he never lets us go. He's always working to redeem us back, but the threat is that he will let you go. 
if you don't come back. It's possible to get so focused on the way that it looks that we lose the, 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 the intention, we lose the heart, the passion. It's possible to be so focused on the music and that the music sounds good that we forget to make it worship. When I was, um, when I was in high school, I was, I was at a church and I remember I was singing during, during the, the worship part of the service. And I remember I was singing and, um, and I was thinking about what the person in front of me was hearing from me. Like I was thinking like, oh, I, I think I was trying to impress the person that was in front of me. And I remember feeling really, really convicted in that moment. I stopped singing for, um, it must have been like five or six years I did not sing in church. Because for me, I had lost the worship of singing. Singing wasn't about worship. It was about making a good sound rather than making a joyful noise. And um, I remember I was in church. I was in college and I was standing next to Missy. And Missy knew because we had started dating um, and she knew that I don't sing in church, right? Uh, she knew that about me and we had talked about it. I said, because f for me, I, I had sort of lost my way with the music. And so when I, when, and during when the music everyone else is singing, my heart is worshiping and I'm thinking about the words and I'm meditating on it. And I'm appreciating that everyone else is singing and um, I could have a really, really deep worship without, without singing anything. But, and then this one time in college, we were uh, in service together and I started singing again and uh, I just broke down crying because Jesus had been able to bring that back to my life with it being worship, without it just being about the music. But we can, when we sing a song, we can be thinking so much about just the, how does the song go and how am I supposed to follow and reading the words and things like that, that we forget to be like, With the church in Ephesus, it's possible to hate evil so much that we stop loving Jesus. We can just get carried away. We do that, don't we? You can just get carried away. I do it, you do it, we do it. We can go through the motions but lose the passion. And when we do that, we become merely religious. And I don't want to be merely religious. I want to be a worshiper. I don't want to be just religious. I want to be faithful. I want to be true. I want to be genuine. I want my, my following Jesus, my, my discipleship to be authentic. Not because I want you to be impressed by the way that I live my life, but I want Jesus, when I see him face to face, to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with the little things. Faithful with the little things. So Jesus has some direction for us, and they're actually going to come from that passage in, in Revelation chapter 2. The solution for losing our way and becoming 
uh, empty on the inside or just caring more about what people think than what about Jesus thinks. The solution is first to remember. Jesus said, remember from where you've fallen. Remember. Can you go back to when you were just absolutely on fire for Jesus? Can you remember your baptism? Can you remember your conversion experience? Can you remember the first time you shared the gospel with somebody? Can you remember the first time God spoke really clearly to your heart, like you knew that that wasn't something that you came up with? Remember, remember from where you've fallen. Remember where you came from. Go back there. Number two, repent. Turn away from what, what you've made it. There's this beautiful worship song that says, uh, I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's a, all about you. And Lord, I'm sorry for the thing that I've made it, but it's all about you. Remember what that was like. Remember your passionate love for Jesus. Remember when it was like, Jesus, I don't care what people think about me. As long as you are proud of me, I just want to make you happy. Go back there. Remember that. Repent and turn away from what you've made it. Come back to what God wants it to be, what Jesus is calling you to do. Give him everything. Lay it down on the altar. Lay everything down on the altar and say, Lord, everything is yours. Anything that you let me keep, I'll take with a, a grateful heart. But I don't, you could have everything. You could take everything. Repent, ask him to forgive you for losing track of what's really important. And then number three, restore. Jesus said, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Go back to doing what you did before. Go restore your walk, restore your faith. You see, Jesus doesn't want you to stop doing stuff. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what he's saying. He just wants you to do it out of a passionate love for him, not because of the routine or the tradition, or it's just what you like. It's your, it's your comfort zone or it's your duty. He wants you to do it out of love, out of just pure desire to be with him and to follow him closely. Let Jesus choose how you should love him. Give up, what you, give up what you think is best and surrender to what he wants. And then Jesus says that he will restore your light. So if you feel like you're a little bit dried up spiritually, we get like that. Haven't had a real good, you know, kick from, from the Holy Spirit in a little while. You get a little bit dried up. What do you do? Go back to when you weren't. Remember what it was like to be on fire for Jesus and then turn away from the things that are keeping you away from feeling that passion again and let Jesus restore you because he wants to. That is good news. Jesus wants to restore your faith. He wants to restore your heart. Today's Palm Sunday. It's a day to remember something that happened a very long time ago. And it's also a day to remember 
our first love. That Jesus cares about what's going on inside your heart. And you're not going to live that out perfectly. God knows I don't. But he cares about the intention of your heart. Don't try to impress me. Don't try to impress each other. We're not trying to impress each other. That's not what Jesus wants. It's not about having a really long, long prayer. If you think I pray long, you should have heard the, these scribes praying in the first century would have been, I mean, outlandish. But it's not about how good you speak or it's also not about what you wear. It's about what's going on in your heart. And that if you're following Jesus, you're, you're doing it because, because of a love that you have for him. So fall in love with Jesus again, repent, and let Jesus restore your life. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you never give up on us, God, that you never let us go. And that whenever